turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 1, the series called Better Call Paul. And I'm going to give you his number today. I have his number. But I did give Paul a call. Now, Better Call Paul is the name of our series. This is the fourth one. The first three messages I hit pretty dogmatically and with a proclamation about what this gospel is all about. And I'm going to apply some LBD to it, lower blade data, right from the scriptures to show you that it's true. And what we have in Romans is an argument. It's an argument between Paul, the apostle, who has a gospel that is a gospel of unconditional salvation with no conditions to be met on the part of the human race at all. Though there are obligations under this covenant, they are, made, they are met after salvation and they are met because of a participation in Christ, the faithful one. We were making the case from the beginning, controlling themes that we are not justified by faith or even through faith. We are justified through and by and because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we are also dealing with the gospel here that's all about God's son. So better call Paul on this. The church is in a place where now more than ever, we better call Paul. Because Romans, especially, the ball has been dropped, especially since the Reformation. There's no punctuation in the Greek. You just read straight Greek letters. There's no punctuation, so you don't know who's talking. Now, Douglas Campbell has some wisdom that came from down under. He's from New Zealand. And I spent my time away reading his 929 pages. I didn't read the 350 pages of footnotes. But he's made this case, I think, and I agree wholeheartedly with it. It's got a lot of fallout connected with it. But I believe that he's made the case for the gospel being all about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make that case in my own way by applying lower blade data. That is by going through Romans verse by verse under these controlling themes Is Paul read apocalyptically? That's what we said at the end of Revelation. Incidentally, the greatest insight into Revelation has yet to come. It comes through the light of Romans shining back on it, and the light of Galatians, and the light of all the epistles of Paul. For we know that Paul attached his name to 13 epistles in the New Testament, and the latest cutting-edge research, which is quite excellent, puts Romans earlier than we thought, maybe between 50 and 51 AD. It was written from the house of a man named Gaius in Corinth. Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. There's a lot of connections between Romans and Corinthians. First and second Corinthians were written first, according to the greatest possible research. And Romans was written after first and second Corinthians. In fact, we're pretty sure that Paul had his experience on the road to Damascus in 34 AD and that there was a kind of a shadow land for him in 43 to 49 and that he wrote Thessalonians, both both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, much earlier than what we had thought before, probably in around 40, right around 40 AD, right after an event in which the Caesar at the time, it's called the Gaian event, The Caesar at the time wanted to put an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem, and that failed. But Paul then said, I want you to know to the Thessalonians, this isn't the end. This doesn't mean that the Antichrist has come and that all this other stuff, and I don't want you to be shaken up by it. So he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians very early. He wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and I'm making the strong case that there wasn't a surrogate of Paul that wrote these, but Paul himself And I think you're going to see this all fall together as we continue. But the case that I've made is agreement with Douglas Campbell, our friend from down under, and that the gospel, the epistle of Romans has an argument going on. Paul isn't always speaking in it. Sometimes Paul is including what this teacher, there is a Jewish Christian teacher, at least someone who claims to be a Christian Jewish teacher in Romans. The previous way to interpret Romans is that Paul had a gripe with the Jew and therefore all Jews. 
The Nazis liked that interpretation, among other groups. And racist groups and other groups have, have liked that interpretation. But the, the false interpretation doesn't count. We're, not, we're discounting that. Paul didn't have a gripe against the Jew. Paul had a gripe against a Jew, a teacher. Think of somebody like James or even Peter, somebody with reputation. And thank God, Paul in Galatians said, I don't care who they're reputed to be. I have this gospel of the grace of God. And that's where Paul's number comes up. Better call Paul. I got his number. It's 555-5555. Five is the number for grace in the scripture. And so we have 555, grace, 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 5555, grace, 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 seven times grace, which is the fullness of unconditional grace. You say, what's the area code? Why, it's one, two, three. The Trinity, the triune God, obviously. I mean, I'm surprised you didn't know that. So you all have Paul's number. I called him. I said, hey, Paul, there seems to be some interpretation problems with Romans. What do you, what's the first thing you're going to say about this? What is this gospel all about? And he said, well, I'll tell you this. It's the gospel of God. And it's all about his son. His son isn't marginalized in this, and there isn't a judgment at the end of time in the future in which people will be judged according to their works and the retributive wrath of God fall on them. Instead, according to my gospel in Romans 2.16, all the human race will be judged according to Jesus Christ, our stand-in. And he says it again in Acts 17, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And that word righteousness, again, that's a key word in Romans. And that, I think we really have to hit that. That's dikaiosune in the Greek. And it's a pretty famous word. Often people have translated it to mean justice, but it doesn't mean justice. It means the righteous act of God in saving the human race. It is the righteous act of God or the saving act of God in his son in saving the human race. That's what the righteousness of God is. And Paul is apocalyptically speaking about this. Apocalyptic comes from the word apocalypto, A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-T-O. That's the Greek. Apocalypto. And Paul says it in Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God, which is the saving act of God in Christ. It's a royal, kingly, regal act. We have to use the controlling interpretation of Psalm 98 for this because he takes the language from Psalm 98, which is 97 in the LXX, where the king is spoken of and his righteousness is defined as the rescue of his people unconditionally we're dealing here not with a bilateral contract where if you do this you'll receive this including we're not dealing with God saying if you believe in my son I will impute a legal righteousness to you which will save you from my anger because I'm a very angry God that's not what God is teaching that's not what Paul's gospel you say how do you know I called him you better call Paul so the righteousness of God is revealed, apocalypto. That's what this is all about. Paul's writings are another apocalypse. And by apocalypse, we mean, and I mean, a disclosure of Jesus Christ in his unconditional saving significance. The key word in Revelation, universal. The key word in Romans, unconditional. A covenant is not a contract. Paul talks about a covenant. A covenant is a unilateral thing where God, the God of pure love, the God of unlimited benevolence, acts on behalf of the other party. And that other party has no capacity for meeting any conditions whatsoever. So God acts unilaterally through a mediator, the faithful Christ whose resurrection after his faithful obedience to death includes all of creation. That's Paul's gospel. It's all about his son. 
The cross of Christ isn't marginalized over here as something God had to do to protect people from his wrath. The cross of Christ is how Christ completed creation, which was very good in the beginning, but not quite perfect. It's perfected through his death on the cross. So the cross of Christ has a universal impact. It has an unconditional impact. A covenant doesn't have conditions. A contract does. God's covenant with all flesh isn't, well, if you all flesh act a certain way, I will reward you with salvation. Or if after you're saved, you do a lot of good works in the energy of the flesh, I'm going to reward you for those good works. That's not what Paul's teaching. I'm going to show you that very clearly today. And so a covenant is God acting unilaterally through the one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. God is the king. He acts in his earthly human representative, which is in this case the human Christ, the humanity of Christ who is also God. In Psalm 2, the gospel that this other person is bringing is something, this is what's really weird, because in Romans we have a dialectic of contradictories. We have two absolutely irreconcilable versions of the gospel. And the shock to my system is the many places in Romans where I adopted what this Romans was teaching, failing to recognize that Paul was quoting a false teacher. And that includes the most controversial thing that Campbell did was Romans 118 to 32, calling that a blocked speech. The whole passage is a turn or burn sermon that is from the teacher's catalog of teaching. This Jew, we'll call him the teacher for now because he emerges out of the shadows the more we study Romans. And I'm going to show you a passage right here very quickly in Romans 2.1 where this bears out in the lower blade data. This teacher had been, is famous, he has reputation, he teaches a gospel according to the works of the law, and Paul is absolutely antagonistic to this person. So Romans 1, 18 to 32, that turn or burn sermon in which everybody gets roasted over the coals is not Paul talking. Paul is talking from Romans 1, 1 to 17, and in the climax in 1, 17, he says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. For as it is written, and here's the key prophetic text, Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous one will live by his faithfulness. That's all about Jesus Christ, not you. That's not you living because you believe. That's Jesus Christ resurrected because he was faithful to death on the cross. That's the apocalypse. The righteousness of God, God's unconditional saving act in Christ is being revealed. It's being disclosed. 117. So why does 118 say the wrath of God is being apocalypto? Against all unrighteousness. And then he goes in to say in Romans 120, all these pagans, they look up into the sky and they don't interpret it as God's creation. So God gives them over to do all these other things here that shock the fundamentalists. And that includes just about everybody that's not the teacher. But here's where Paul comes in. This is why I know that this, I read a book about Campbell's book while I was in Florida too. And in it, there was an objection lodged against 118 to 32 being a whole turn or burn sermon that Paul produces. And then Campbell replied, and so I'm down, I'm down on the side that says 118 to 32 is the voice of the teacher. This would have been acted out by Phoebe, who was the woman that Paul sent the epistle to the Romans with. Phoebe would have acted this out and they would have known, wow, that sounds like that televangelist or like 10 of them. And the Romans would have gotten a kick out of it. She would have probably performed it using the same cadence. Today you have to add a syllable <laughs> To almost everything you say. Because today people work on techniques of preaching 
without doing any exegetical hard work. So they're preaching a false gospel, but they're doing it dynamically. And that's what this is all about. This, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people that are without excuse. And he says they're without excuse. But when Paul starts talking again in 2.1, let's look at it. Paul says, well, therefore you, speaking to a singular individual, second person singular, you are without excuse. And he quotes the same, he uses the same word that the preacher used in 120. The pagans are without excuse. Are they? They're actually with an excuse. The false gospel presumes that humanity in their condition in sin has a capacity to see God through natural theology. Paul's gospel doesn't say it. Paul's gospel more agrees with Calvin about total depravity of man, that there is no ethical capacity in man. There is no capacity in man to reason his way to God. It has to be by an apocalypse. That's why this is delightful to me because my salvation experience was God saving me And then giving me faith after saving me. So my salvation was an apocalyptic event where God's unconditional grace shifted me from Adam into Christ. We say, well, who else does that happen to? Paul, also known as Saul. Better call Saul. No, better call Paul. Saul's gone. Paul's experience, his biographical experience, his autobiographical experience, meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, being transformed and liberated, and called an apostle while he was still a persecutor, doesn't square with this whole idea of justification by your faith. Oh, by grace, yeah, but through your faith. It doesn't square with that whole experience. Paul's experience wasn't the experience of justification after coming to despair because you couldn't fulfill the law, so God was really nice about it. You can't fulfill the law. Nobody can, so I'll give you a lower bar. Just believe in my son. As if people can do that in their incapacity. So Paul's gospel presumes and assumes, as the Old Testament all the way through presumes, man is without capacity. He's not without excuse. He's without capacity. But the judge who judges people who are without capacity is without excuse. And that's where Paul, you see, this is a full-on battle going on here in Romans, and I love it. It's polemical. That comes from the Greek word polemos, war. This is war. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not fragile or delicate like the human body is, susceptible to death and decay and weakness. Our weapons are mighty in the sight of God to the pulling down of strongholds and the demolition of every high fortress that builds itself up against the knowledge of God. And that's exactly what he's doing in Romans because this other gospel by this teacher has exalted itself against the knowledge of God and presented God as a God of retributive justice rather than the God who is called love who has unlimited benevolence. I think one of the climactic verses in Romans comes with 1132. God shut up everybody in disobedience. There's ethical incapacity, absolute ethical incapacity in order that he might have mercy on all. That's a key verse. That's a climactic verse. And I've taught that before, but here's some lower blade data to show you that much of Romans should be punctuated, and if it is punctuated in the English, you see where this teacher's talking. So you've got two apocalyptos here. 117, Paul says the righteousness of God is being revealed, which is the saving act of God in Christ, an unconditional saving act. Remember, it's a covenant. It doesn't have conditions. There's no conditions on this covenant to get in, There's no conditions in this covenant to stay in. There are obligations to 
those who are under the covenant, and the obligations amount to faithfulness to God, the covenant God. But the faithfulness that's required is the participation of the human being in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Ethical capacity only comes when you recognize that you have been crucified with Christ, that you are a sharer in his history, that the old Adamic flesh has been cut away by a circumcision not made with hands, and so that you're not re-educating the irredeemable Adamic nature, but you've put off the old man altogether with all of his deeds and put on the new man who is being renewed according to the knowledge of Christ. So uh, are the obligation under this covenant, be faithful. But thanks be to God who has called us into fellowship with his son. The participation is with his faithfulness. Paul knew it. I asked him, I called him, Paul, what do you think about that? He said, well, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, and who's he, who's he in a battle with in Galatians 2? A famous Jewish Christian named Peter. Is Peter the teacher in Romans? No, I don't think so. What about James? James seems to have something against Paul's gospel. No, I think James is showing that you're not justified by works or faith. I think James is saying you're not justified by works or by your faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I think James is saying that. I think James and Peter and a lot of the 12 got things wrong for quite a while, so God said... Among the Trinity, better call Paul. Because when Paul came up, God gave him the essential Christian teaching of the New Testament. And even Revelation, as we've seen, borrows from Paul. Because Paul has given us an apocalypse. It's so pure and so clean and so simple. And Paul is so kind and gentle and not angry Angry at women, angry at men, angry at certain brands of sin. Paul isn't that way. Paul has an unconditional, apocalyptic gospel by which people are shifted from sin into Christ with no conditions and kept in Christ with no conditions. Now, some of these people of humanity are going to find that that shift happens In bodily resurrection. Blessed are you because the shift has already happened to you. And so you are already having the life of the coming age. And you already know things that are going to be realized. In other words, you know things now through a glass darkly. That others don't know because they haven't yet been shifted from sin into Christ. You know things obscurely. That one day you will know face to face. One day you're going to know this gospel is true and that Jesus Christ has universally saved all of creation. One day you're going to know it. It's going to be absolutely clear to you. But it's not only going to be clear to you, it's going to be clear to everybody else. But blessed are you now because it's already becoming clear to you in this life. You have hope. You have a good hope by grace. You have an opportunity of fellowship with the Father himself and with Jesus Christ his Son as they encourage you with eternal encouragement in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17. You have the privilege of announcing this truth to some who will believe it and some who will not believe it. But that's up to God. Our gospel doesn't include believe. It just says Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he, was ro- he rose from the dead. We preach that gospel, which is all about God's son, and faith is between God and the hearer. God will give faith. God will grant faith. God will bring people into Christ. Now, here's, here's some lower blade data. Was Paul really in a toe-to-toe Knock down, drag out. And I'll tell you this. Let me give you a hint. Paul knocks down and drags out this other guy. But a lot of preachers today with volume, with power, with dynamics will preach a gospel to you and to me and to America and to Europe and to Africa and to Asia, which is the gospel of this teacher and not the gospel of Paul. 
Now, so what we're doing is fighting two fronts here. We're fighting one, the teacher's gospel, which emerges as we study Romans, and I'll show you very clearly, and then Paul knocks him out and drags him out. By the time Romans 3.20 comes, he's already dragged out, but Paul has a few more blows to deliver to him throughout the whole epistle. When Paul's done with him, he's silent. And then Paul begins Paul in 321 to 26, which we, I intuitively found was very special to Paul, and I've realized since that it is. But now a righteousness from God apart from law is revealed. He's going right back to Romans 117 at 321. So between 118 and 320, there's a whole bunch of stuff this other teacher's saying. And if you read the other teacher, you hardly ever read about Jesus Christ. He's marginalized. He's out here somewhere, just like in many Christian experiences today. The cross of Christ, the atoning work of Christ is marginalized out here somewhere. It doesn't really mean that much. But if you ask Paul, well, Paul, what do you think that of that? He would have said, I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Everything's right there at that heart. It's all about God's son. This other teacher doesn't do it. So let's, what about 118 to 32? I dogmatically proclaimed to you last week. That wasn't Paul, but that's a a speech that would have been dramatically and satirically performed by Phoebe to the tenement churches in Rome. And there were many tenement churches. And she would have probably been theatrical in her presentation. The wrath of God is apocalypto. That seems to be antagonistic with the saving act of God in Christ universally is being apocalypto. So we have already an irreconcilable contradiction going on. And so that whole thing, if you're going to blame or impute some horrible sin to certain people who are listed in these lists of sins, including gossips, And backbiters. Don't say Paul's the one that gives you the right to do it. Because he didn't. So, here's some lower blade data. Here's Paul. Paul speaks right after 118 to 32. This guy gets done and he says, these people, though they know that the judgment of God is death and that people are worthy of death that do these things, do they know that? They not only do them, but they applaud the ones that do it. They applaud them. They applaud them. Now, he's done with his preamble to his sermon. Oh, I could name a whole lot of famous preachers of our time who would have agreed right down the line with a gospel that is entirely antagonistic to the gospel of God proclaimed by Paul. The worst sinner to ever live is the best guy to preach this. Because he realizes that his salvation was a demonstration of the unconditional grace of the triune God, centered in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at Romans 2.1. Paul speaking here. I have the Greek text in front of me. Therefore, you are without excuse. Obviously, this guy who said all these pagans are without excuse because they failed Natural Theology 101. God condemns them right from the start because he made this universe and they didn't recognize or give him praise or thanksgiving. So they're without excuse. Paul says, but you are. I know you are, but what am I? Therefore, you are without excuse. The same word, anapologetos, without apology or without excuse, from Romans one twenty is thrown back in the face of the preacher. And then he says, oh man, ho anthropa, oh man, single man, second person singular. You, oh man, Paul isn't after the Jew or all Jews or even after Judaism as a religious system. He's after a Jew who is without excuse for preaching that way. You say, you're preaching now. Yeah, I'm preaching against that. I'm preaching for an unconditional gospel. What I believe is that the gospel is an unconditional saving act of God toward not only the human race, but all of creation. And that's what the gospel's all about. 
So that's what Paul is saying. I asked Paul. I called him. One, two, three, five, 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 five. Therefore, you are without excuse, O oh man, O oh mere man. Then he says, whoever you are. The, the Greek actually says, every one of you or whosoever of you all. But it's a singular, again, second person, meaning Paul saying you. It's accusative, means Paul's pointing a finger. Accusative means he is accusing this man of being without excuse. In fact, Paul's going to end up teaching that all of the human race, there is none that does good. There's no ethical capacity in our plight in sin. There's none that does good. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that understands. They've all together, all of them as a whole group have gone out of the way. In fact, all sinned. And keep coming short of the glory of God being justified, which justified is not. Now, here's what we got to get, and I'll show it to you with lower blade data. Justified doesn't mean you believe and God imputes to you a legal righteousness, which we call justification. That's not what Paul is saying at all. And this really comes to me as a shock to the system. As I said a couple times this week, it turned my hair white. I was so shocked. Just joking. So, but I looked at a lamb, and his head and his hairs were white like lamb's wool. So the shock is a good thing. But this shock came to me that it is not a legal imputation of righteousness to an undeserving sinner who understands the gospel and believes. Justification is a gracious deliverance enacted by God without condition on the part of man. It's deliverance rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 4.25. He, Jesus Christ, here's central gospel stuff, central gospel stuff. He was delivered over, handed over for our sins and raised from the dead, resurrected for our justification, which means our Gracious deliverance. His resurrection was the deliverance of all creation and all mankind. And that's why Romans 5.1, Romans 5.1 through 8.39 is Paul presenting his, I call it gospel unchained. The gospel unchained. And it begins with Romans 5.1, which Almost, this is making me really mad because almost every translation caters to a lack of understanding of what's going on in Romans. So they say, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. But the faith, the, the way that we're justified means, therefore, being delivered freely and unconditionally by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is what delivers us, and he, by saying, raised for our justification, that means that the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ to death was rewarded by resurrection, a resurrection which included all the rest of humanity. And so it's by the resurrection that we were delivered. Therefore, by the faithfulness of God, we've been delivered. So Romans 5.1 begins what I call the gospel unchained. When Paul was in prison in 2 Timothy 2.9, he said, I'm in prison for the word. But the word isn't bound. The word isn't chained. The gospel isn't chained. It's time to unchain this gospel. Because it's been chained. It's been chained in Tetelestai. It's been chained in the past two affiliations I've been with. It's been chained in Protestantism. It's been chained in the charismatic movement. It's been chained chained in the Pentecostal movement. It's been chained among the Protestants. It's been chained among the Catholics. It's been chained in Western culture. And it's underneath the subconsciousness of our nation and of our generation. And I like what Campbell said. It's the Kool-Aid we drink every single day, and it's killing us. It's killing us. Romans 5.1 begins the gospel unchained. Therefore, Paul says, let's start with this. Being delivered 
unconditionally saved through the faithfulness, the faithfulness, which goes back to Romans 1.17, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his obedience to the death of the cross followed by resurrection, we have peace with God. And peace is the hallmark of the kingdom of God. Now, Paul still has some things he's got to iron out with his teachers. Some, some of them will be in Romans 9 through 11. Some of them will be in Romans 14 when we get to the idea of without faith. If there's, it's without faith, it's sin, etc. Paul has a lot of things to iron out. But let's go back to 2.1. Therefore, you, preacher, teacher, you're without excuse. Oh, man. The vocative Masculine singular. It identifies a Jewish teacher, not the Jew generically. Whoever you are, and he means every one of you also. So there's not only a teacher, but there's also a group around him who believes the same thing. It's dear old Dr. So-and-so. Or it's dear old so-and-so. Or dear old, many letters after his name, period, so-and-so. But Paul says in Romans 16, 17 to 20, in a very pivotal closing passage, mark those among you who bring a different doctrine than the one I just gave you, the gospel unchained, and avoid them. That gives you the nail in the coffin that Paul's been talking about a guy who's got a denomination or a group built around him that Paul has had to go out with the mighty word of God. You're without excuse. Not all these pagans whom God handed over to do all this stuff. They are with an excuse. You are without excuse. You who pass judgment on these others. Inasmuch as you who pass this judgment onto others condemn Yourself, because you do the same things. In other words, all those things you just listed, you do some of them, if not all of them, in your thoughts. Why? Because you who say that man has ethical capacity outside of Christ and outside of the Holy Spirit, you yourself don't have that ethical capacity to pass judgment on other people. Paul isn't condemning the guy as much as saying, you condemn yourself. There's much more that goes to this, and that's why we might be on this for a year or two. Oh, man, is whole anthropa, whoever you are, who judges. For in passing judgment on another, and there's the word heteron, the legalistic preacher, if you want to call it that for now, and that's a fairly safe term, always views himself as being right, and everyone else is heteron, the other. These others. Paul's going to really shock him in Romans 9.30 when he says, the pagans who never sought the righteousness of God have found it. And the the Jews, among those Jews who sought it by works, never found it. He's indicting this one teacher that says that you can find the righteousness of God through works. Hey, read Romans 2, 6 through 10. Do you think that's Paul saying everyone who does right and practices righteousness and does good is going to be rewarded with eternal life and glory and honor? Is that Paul? No, that's this other guy. And everyone who does evil is going to have anguish and tribulation, and a day of retribution. Is that Paul? No. Paul says in Romans 2.16, he kind of says what the preacher says. This teacher says, God will one day judge the thoughts and the intents of everyone's heart. And Paul says, parentheses, according to my gospel, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. In other words, we're going to look at our judge and find out that he was judged for us on the cross. We're going to see a crucified Christ, fleshly slain as if the wounds are still bleeding. And he will have been judged. And he will have made a judgment on us. You see, it seems to me that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You take that seriously or was Paul just throwing something out to be thought about. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Well, what happened then? When he was done, when Jesus said, it is finished, what was done then? The world was reconciled to God. Are you saying to me that the gospel declares that the whole world is reconciled to God? Yes, I am. But there are still people that don't realize it, don't know it yet. Thank God, by the grace of God, you know it. But it's totally by the grace of God. You start looking at other people as being reconciled to God through the single act of God in Christ. You, O man, and every preacher, televan I don't care. I really don't care because I'm free now. I'm free now. I've had mentors. I don't have mentors. I have people I study. I have exercise mentors. I found out in Florida that my exercise mentor, his name is Dr. Rene Callier. I've been following his rejuvenation strategy since the 80s. And I was delighted to find out that he died. Now, be careful. I haven't finished my statement. I wasn't delighted to find out that he died. I was delighted to find out that he died at age 98. So it's like, check. That was a pretty good mentor. It must have worked for him. And then my other guy was Dr. Leonard Schwartz, who was a psychiatrist from the University of Pittsburgh who invented heavy hands. And I found out that he had some physical things, but he died in his high 80s, I believe. So my two mentors passed, passed away, and they lived a long time. So, and I've had good human mentors. But no matter how good your human mentor is, you're stuck in some kind of system that's built around them. And that's not what I want to do. And now I'm free. I'm not chained. I don't have a respect of persons. I don't have, I don't have a respect of persons in the sense that I don't have a worshipful attitude toward movie stars or rock stars. I don't have a worshipful attitude even toward my favorite movie stars like Clint Eastwood. I, I don't have, or John Wayne. John Wayne says life is tough. It's tougher if you're stupid. It's a pretty good philosophy. Um, but I don't, ha- and I don't have a bend-the-knee genuflect to preachers of our time. Some of them say, well, you should go to this person because this famous person that you've read is at a conference. I don't care. I wouldn't go to the conference. I've already got all I need out of the book. I don't need to meet the guy. Why should I need to? I like what Paul said. I, no, I didn't go running after the 12. In fact, I stayed away from him as long as I could for a while. And when I met Peter, I confronted him face to face because he was a hypocrite. He was moving away from those pagans and not eating with them anymore. He's kind of like this Jewish teacher for a while. So is James. Well, he's the Lord's brother. I don't care. If he's not the Lord, then I don't care. The Lord's brother from the same womb of Mary. He's got to be right. No, he doesn't. And that's why Paul said in Galatians, I don't care what their reputation is. He said, oh, there's Peter, James, and John, the supposed pillars. Paul was unchained. You see, they were starting to screw up the whole mess, the whole thing. The same guys that fled from the cross. Paul ran to the cross. So the triune God got together, one, two, three, and said, this ain't going well. We better call Paul. I say now in history, it's a good time to say, this ain't going well. We better call Paul. Look how he finishes this off. Oh, man. In passing judgment on another, you pronounce judgment on yourself. Katakrima. You pronounce judgment on yourself. Again, it's saut, sautan, which is a reflexive pronoun. I'm only doing this to show you that the lower blade data bears this out. It's an accusative masculine singular. Three times in this one verse, Paul is addressing a single individual, a Jewish teacher. And this Jewish teacher teaches, and I still have yet to read Wisdom of Solomon. I've read part of it. But the case that Campbell makes is that he makes his sermon based on a piece of writing called the Wisdom of Solomon. 
Now, some Catholic Bibles will have that in the canon of Scripture. Most people, including Anastasia or uh, Athanasius, rather, rejected this as being canonical. I reject it as being canonical. He reasoned from the, this book called the Book of Wisdom, which is the Wisdom of Solomon, which was written around 45 AD, so it came out about the same time as Paul. And it was reasoning on the basis of a righteousness that happened if, you, if the male was truly cir- physically circumcised, that did something ethically to him. And the wisdom of Solomon was the means by which this preacher would preach. But I say to him, a greater than Solomon is here in Christ. A greater than Solomon is here in Christ. And I would say that the wisdom given to Paul by grace is greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Furthermore, the book called The Wisdom of Solomon isn't really a reflection of the wisdom of the king, the son of David, called Solomon anyways. That's why when you look at what the teacher says, you don't see much about Christ. You don't see much about him standing in for the human race. You don't see much about him being central. You don't see much about the atoning work of his being universal or unconditional or in the center of anything at all. And there's people that like to say the word Christocentric as if they're Christocentrists, and they're not. They agree with this preacher. So the two fronts are this. We're fighting the... Paul is fighting this false teacher, but in our time, we are fighting people's interpretation of Romans, which mixes in this false teacher. Look how he closes. You pronounce judgment on yourself because you are doing, and again, it's a second person singular of prasso. You are practicing or doing the same things. In other words, Paul's aiming at this. Everybody, including you, teacher, Now, it's not Peter or James or John, but what if it was at that time in history? Paul wrote Romans earlier than we thought, probably in 50, maybe 51. In fact, Paul wrote most of his epistles by 51 AD. And so this is all from the epistles themselves. So Paul, writing from the house of Gaius, is already aware of all these things in Corinth. And he says, look, you can't help doing the same things of these people that you condemn. Because you don't have the ethical capacity, because the ethical capacity, as Paul's going to teach in Romans 6 through 8.13, 6, 1 to 8.13, is created by, one, a recognition that you share in Christ's history, being crucified, buried, and raised, and two, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in you alone. God in you, both willing and doing. Because you set yourself apart as being not like the others, and you think that it's a behavioral thing, you're condemning yourself because no one has the ethical capacity that meets the requirements of the covenant or the obligations of the covenant, except by the Holy Spirit. A true Jew, in the words of this very teacher, is a Jew by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In him. So, in closing, let's go to Romans one one to get. Let's get back to Paul's gospel. The intro. The intro starts in one one. Now, I'm going to just say this in closing. We're going to get you out before too long. But Paul, in this epistle, pulls a breach of etiquette. There's an epistolary etiquette when you write a letter. There's still a letter writing is lost now because instead we abbreviate little messages and texts and it's creating a language that's kind of different. Letter writing by hand is still an art. I'd much rather get a handwritten letter that expresses someone's heart than a, well, there's nothing wrong with a text because that you have to do that now, you know. When I text my sister Becky, we use about three letters and we, we know what each other is saying. But this was a breach of etiquette. Because instead of Paul saying, from Paul the apostle, to the Romans, he doesn't say to the Romans until 1-7. Because he's all urgent about this. Look at what he says in 1-1. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now this means an imperial slave of a king. He's a servant that stands at the throne of the king, ready to do his will. 
And we already got the idea that Jesus Christ is the king. And that God has made him king by resurrection. And that the righteous act of the king in Psalm 97, 1 to 3, in the LXX or Psalm 98, 1 to 3, in your English translation, defines righteousness as a rescuing act by a king on behalf of his people. The first, we hit the ground running with Paul calling himself an imperial slave, I think. Of Jesus Christ. Paul said called apostle. Some translations say called as an apostle. But I I just read called apostle. The triune God in an unconditional act. Of shifting Paul from Adamic ontology into Christ. Said hey worst sinner that ever lived. Persecutor. Harmful. Violent. Murderous man. You're an apostle. So what happened on the road to Damascus is Paul went through that whole rigmarole that the teacher said you have to go through and that many in the Reformation said you had to go through. You had to realize, even if you're a pagan, that you couldn't fulfill the law, which is crazy because they didn't even have the law. So you go through this psychological thing where you come down and you crash and burn and say, I can't fulfill the law, therefore I believe in Jesus, and he rewards me with. That didn't happen to Paul. I know, I called him. He said, that's not what happened to me. Justification is not the legal forensic imputation of a legal righteousness leaving you sinful but saved. Justification is a divine deliverance and a liberation that comes with the Holy Spirit who gives you the ethical capacity to fulfill an obligation of the covenant called faithfulness by your participation with the faithful Christ. Makes it all different now. It's all different. Called apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets. In other words, this gospel, and this is what's coming up soon. I'm going to have to leave some of this for Wednesday. And we will have Wednesday service this week, incidentally, and not Thursday. Because Thursday is whatever. I have no, I have no esteem for holidays either. One thing I, I will say this, though. One thing I hate about Thanksgiving is you're forced to eat turkey. Who said we had to eat turkey? You're forced to eat. So everybody, I can't wait for that turkey. I can. I mean, turkey's good, but I'd rather have chicken capon. I'd rather have pheasant under glass. I'd rather have a steak. I'd rather have fried chicken. I'd rather have KFC than turkey. But I'm forced to eat turkey one day a year. That's how I view it. So I'm thankful about the gospel of God, about his son, but I don't necessarily get all excited about eating turkey. Because usually, people already get the drumsticks. Anyways, just trying to keep your attentiveness. Thanksgiving, the one day a year when you're forced to eat turkey. Like all the pilgrims ate turkey. I'm sure they ate venison and rabbit and pheasant and vegetables and fruits and maize and corn and all this good stuff. Some of them didn't even eat turkey. And never mind. But we got to take the day off because it's turkey day. No, never mind. Don't get me started. He announced it through his prophets. We don't know that if you read the prophets in Habakkuk 2.4, you wouldn't know that's Jesus Christ. You'd say, my righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. But it's only when Jesus Christ came, died, was buried and raised that we look back on Habakkuk and say, that's messianic. That's Jesus Christ, whose faithfulness to the death of the cross satisfied the obedience of God. And you know what he did when he went to the cross, among other things? He made the decision for you that you could never make on your own to be saved. He made the decision for you. Standing in for all humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, meaning not my will as all humanity, but your will be done. And God's will was done On the cross, because God's will is to save all humankind. If it was up to you and your decision, you wouldn't be ever saved. It's up to God. He made the decision for you. Jesus Christ made the decision for you. He executed the faithfulness to the point of death. And God rewarded him. He lived by the faithfulness. He was raised from the dead as a reward for his faithfulness. Now, guess what? Everyone else comes under that reward for his faithfulness by grace. 
by grace, you are rewarded with the reward that was given to Jesus Christ for his faithfulness. After all, God saved him in Psalm 22. When Jesus cried out, save your darling from the mouth of the lion, he was calling out for salvation and the father saved him by raising him from the dead. And when the father saved him by raising him from the dead, the father saved the human race and all creation by the one act of God in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel unchained. That's the gospel without Counselors and guides and teachers and mentors who say, now you better, you better filter that around and better change that and better qualify that because we want to, you know, get molded back into having to eat turkey, you know. So I'm going to close. But here's the last thing I'll say in verse, verse three, about his son. Gospel of God about his son. That little word peri, P-E-R-I, means all about, about his son. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about his faithfulness. It's all about his obedience to the death of the cross. For by the act of one man, all became sinners. And by the single act of faithful obedience to the death of the cross, all are given Life, it's dikaio plus zoes, not a legal righteousness, but a deliverance called resurrection life. Paul? Yes. Who am I speaking with? Well, this is Rick. Well, who are you? I'm just an inquirer from the 21st century. What's your gospel about? It's not my gospel. It's the gospel of God, Rick. Well, what's it about? Well, it's all about his son. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Thank you for giving us Paul's number and for giving us the number of this teacher that will be emerging from the shadows more and more as we discover the lower blade data. I thank you, Father, for this time in history for us having the opportunity by your unconditional and pure and sheer grace to discover this gospel unchained and discovering this gospel unchained will unchain us and deliver us from our various psychological prisons and also deliver us to be free to announce this glorious good news to all humankind frees us from judging people as the fundamentalists call the heathen or the pagans, for they are not other than we. Other human beings are not other than us. We are all part of the one humanity for whom Christ died. Therefore, the love of Christ will now constrain us, and may it, Father, for if one died for all, then all died. And if all died, then there's nothing left but to be made alive in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this in Christ's name. And thank you for your attentiveness. This is a series that's going to be the definitive series of, well, I don't want to say it. But I'd just say of my career, but it's a definitive series. It's the Gospel Unchained. It's better called Paul. It's just now, and it's, that's its fourth one today. And they will be appearing. There's no notes with it because it's too big for notes. But I hope you'll stay tuned with this because I just, at least I celebrated it in thir- uh, this past 17th and 18th, 38 years. So for 38 years, this man was laid at the pool of Siloam and waiting for an angel to come and stir up the waters. 38 years is over. Jesus Christ comes and does away with all the taboos and all the human distortions and all of the humanistic and legalistic and religious construals of Paul. Now our church stands up and walks away. Doesn't wait for the superstitious angel to come and stir the waters. We've met Jesus Christ. That's our history. The 38 years are over. 
in John 5. The 38 years are over. 38 years in which Israel wandered in the wilderness before entering the land is over. We're going into the land now. And you know how you go into the land? The priests stand in the middle of the Jordan with the ark. And everybody gets a clear view of the ark. And the ark is Christ. It's the act of God in Christ, the unconditional act of salvation. It's the apocalypse of God. We go across because the waters are split. And we go into that land. 38 years are up. Now is just the beginning. All right, thanks for your attentiveness. You're dismissed.